So we were kind of like the the outcasts of being as being happy bands. But then we stuck to what we do, and then people realized that there's um, there's something to it. There's a there's a love and positive message and sort of you know hippie values that that uh, really can stand the test of time. Music can have a really powerful effect on people, bringing people together and providing that that bonding. The History of Alternative Podcast. A historic look back at everything alternative. And we are live. 311, 30 years old this year. It's hard not to, these days, name off dozens, hundreds of alternative bands who have a strong hip-hop vibe or influence. But back when 311 was cutting their teeth in Omaha, again, 30 years ago, they were pioneers of integrating funk, hip-hop, metal, and reggae into what became their signature sound. This right here is the History of Alternative podcast. We're recording it live on Facebook today, so if we mess up, you'll see it. Uh, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Google, Amazon, and Spotify. I'm James Van Ostel. That's John Manley, the most dangerous man in radio. And the History of Alternative podcast is sponsored by Wintrust. Go to Wintrust.com for locations, information, as well as beginner-level improv classes. So we're joined today by Nick Hexham and Peanut from 311. And since this is the History of Alternative podcast, let's start by talking a little bit about those sounds you picked up and molded into the 311 sound. What did you grow up listening to? Well, um, <clears throat> I mean, my first love was early rock and roll. My dad's 45s, <clears throat> like uh, Chuck Berry and Elvis and stuff like that. And then um, I got into... The Clash was the end-all, be-all band for me that I discovered and when I was like 12 or 13. And then I was just all about cool alternative music and punk rock. Um, and, and I guess I think the next big signpost in my musical development was hearing what was going on in L.A. in the mid-'80s, uh, Chili Peppers, Fishbone, stuff like that and um just hearing that you could combine so many new things and uh and then when we first got going there was a lot <clears throat> there was alternative that was like uh seattle music but we wanted more funk and hip-hop in there so that was kind of what we did um other than like chili peppers beastie boys like what <laughs> I guess my question is, how did you end up developing, I guess what you call now, like the 311 sound? Like, that's not an easy thing to go, okay, like, how did you, when you started this band and you said, I want to be hip hop, funk, reggae, <laughs> rock, and rap, and we're gonna, just going to do that. Like, how, how does that start? Like, how was the, the beginning process? Like, did you start off as just like a reggae band or like a punk band and then just started integrating things in? Or was it always kind of the idea from the start to try to be this hybrid of all of these styles. Well, I think we were, we were listening to everything. So, I mean, it just blew, like Nick was saying, all the influences, I mean, throw, throw metal in there for me. I mean, I grew up listening to Iron Maiden and Metallica and, 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 you know, absolutely wanted the, that driving bass sound to be a part of, who I was as an ingredient in whatever collective I was a part of. So, I mean, and Nick, Nick was like, this is reggae, you know, like I, I'd heard reggae songs before, but it was like, I got an education in reggae and it happened really fast as we were like covering 
Lively Up Yourself and when we were still a, a bar band in Omaha when I had to get let in right before the show and got kicked out as soon as we were done because I was 17 or 16. And, uh, and I, I, I learned it like that. So it, it was just, I don't know, even though it wasn't something I grew up listening to, it became a part of us instantly. And I think it just comes from having an open mind about being creative and letting the other people in your groups influences influence you as much as your own influences you know take them all in make it personal and then see what comes out and especially where the the playing field is absolutely level there's no history involved and we didn't really care if people liked us or not we were having so much fun we knew that people would would come along so it was mix and match and we hope this works i mean we did a we did crosstown traffic as a cover cover uh, just in the garage. I don't think we ever played it live. And we realized, you know, that, you know, we, we weren't that good <laughs> at that particular song, but our, our styles are, are a product of the age that we grew up in watching MTV playing Spando Ballet and uh, NXS and, and the Smiths. And then uh, they do Headbangers Ball. And we watched all of that. We took it all in like it was food for our brains and and the sound just came out really naturally. I don't think we had to force anything. We were just a product of being able to hear the world at, all at the same time, you know, songs from all over, all at once, and then sharing and being really excited about Houston's hip hop scene and and what was going on in LA and Seattle and, you know, and giggling at what was going on in Miami. It's like, I can't believe they're getting away with these lyrics and all these, it's just, it's just an amazing era to grow up in and be a musician. And it's a testament to how open-minded we, we were <laughs> when we were first getting started. And, uh, and yeah, just lucky to have an audience kind of come along for that crazy ride. Did it help as far as the early days of kind of not having any expectations or um, pressure to do this where you could kind of really just figure it out? Because I think you can really hear it from like, the first three records, especially like by the time you got to like 311, it, it sounds like you had the, for lack of a better term, the recipe figured out. But like in those first two, especially music, um, which I really love, but like that is kind of, when you go back and listen to it, the transitions are a little bit more jarring or abrupt versus how you kind of now have like the flow, so to speak of it. When you started off, like, when did you, was there a moment where you finally said, all right, I think we've got the right ingredients of the stew to go make this thing? Nick, what do you think? Well, um, I would say from that very first gig, because we had such a good um, launching um, gig, which was opening for Fugazi. And, you know, in 1990, um, there was just, there was a, a big, a lot of awareness that alternative was on the rise with like bands that previously could not have gotten record deals. And then like Jane's addiction and helmet were getting signed and getting big record deals. And there was just a, a an excitement to, to mosh. And so I just felt once we exploded the crowd, um, when we were opening for Gazi for Fugazi, that we definitely had something there. Um, but yeah, we made three independent albums um, in Omaha 
that the very first one was just funded by me having taking a, a student loan out and then just, um, you know, renting a little studio. And, um, but they, they, that's where we kind of went through our, you know, woodshed process of, of, and then the, the getting to go on CD, um, on the, the unity album was such a big deal. Like everything, all local bands before that just had tapes and we actually got a CD and that was a, a big deal in 1991 when that came out. And I, I feel like we, we felt like we really had something, but yeah, you can look over those first three albums to go from um, tons of energy and extremely eclectic to kind of narrowing it down where the blue album is probably the most narrowed down as far as, um, you know, a lot of cool energetic riff rock songs. And there was, there was eclecticness that we left off on the B side songs like, uh, let the cards fall and tribute and, and, you know, next these kind of unusual songs, uh, gap being one that we probably should have put on the album because it was like, um, so good to play live. And then after that on, transistor we went back to um let's not rest on our laurels let's go totally creative not worry about if something's going to be good live or not just like let our creativity run wild and it was kind of poorly received at first because people were expecting blue album part two and then they got this like you know dub and trip hop and all these different weird influences on there um so it kind of had a bit of a backlash about it, but then after a while it became one of our um, most beloved albums in within our, our fan base. So a lot of changes in those, you know, first five years, you, you, you grow and change so much. So um, it's, it's fun to be looking back now with these live stream shows that we're doing of the first three albums. So we are recording this live to Facebook right now. We're going to talk about, what the future of 311 performances is as we get a little further along. But I do want to read a couple comments. Sue Ellen says, I've seen 311 play in Chicago so many times I can't remember. They were the yearly summer concert we had to attend. Can't wait until concerts come back. Uh, Josh says they easily put on some of the best concerts I've ever seen. Um, Carolina says, hi, guys. Miss you in Chicago. She speaks for all of us. Uh, Frank says, can't wait to see you guys again. Agreed on all Thank those you. points. So 30 years is a really long time for any relationship to endure. I mean, I guess in 20, 27 months can feel like a really long time for a relationship. You're still the same five guys that you were back then. As you look back on three decades of being together, were there any challenging times, any come to Jesus moments in the band where you thought, eh, maybe, maybe things aren't going to work out? I mean, uh, a family has disagreements, you know, that's, that's definitely true. And where, you know, I think we've said at one point, let's just, if things are getting a little tense, let's just kind of take a little time off and relax. So it, it always has a way of um, working itself out. And, um, but I think that we keep, you know, an attitude of gratitude to realize that we're lucky to have this career. We're lucky to have each other. We, we stumbled on something really nice and, um, in order to keep that going, you got to be willing to uh, be flexible and compromise and uh, not insist 
um, too much and be ready to not get your way sometimes and just um, keeping that gratitude going. So you guys are incredibly positive and you carry that message through your music, which is amazing. But there was a moment in time where things were not quite positive. And when we were prepping for this, uh, this podcast, I mentioned it to James and he doesn't know the story. So I, I apologize for bringing it up, but it has to be asked uh, just because James has never heard the story. But um, Nick's guys... getting ready to leave. He's getting ready to walk off the screen. Yeah, as you know the the where is this going? Where is <laughs> Um, can you tell James about the time that S.A. Martinez beat up Scott Stapp, please? <laughs> Luckily, I wasn't there, so I don't have to tell it. I was there. Peanut, give us the great. goods. Also, congratulations <laughs> on not making this your band's calling card, because this is such a crazy moment that easily you could have been wrapped up into pop culture, and that could have been like what the band was known for. So congratulations before we start the story on the fact that you've had such an amazing musical career where this doesn't, this can just be like a funny side story, right? <laughs> it's really interesting the way that media has given us the hands-off approach. You know, we, I mean, we talk, we talk music with, with music lovers and, and DJs yeah. and programmers. Like that's, that's who we talk to. We don't talk to the, the press about, you know, our personal lives or even the crazy shit that's happened to us in our, in our, in our careers. It's, it's kind of funny. We're, we're left to our own devices. The record labels have been the same way, just like make your own history. And I think it's a great thing, you know, so we get to celebrate our successes and, and wallow in our failures just as a, as a group. And that's, which one has of the to be really a great, um, that's kind of be like a great feeling, right? To, to be known for your music and, and that can kind of be your calling card, right? Yeah. And the, and the shows and the connectivity with the, with the audience, I think that all like that rises higher than um, the fact that, it was Baltimore Thanksgiving night. We were watching the Lakers in the hotel bar. Uh, it was, yeah, it was like three out of five of us. Um, I was there with my wife. I mean, we were, we were all there with our significant others. And uh, Scott said something really un, un, unwelcome to uh, S.A. about his wife. And, uh, and, and essay was like, what, <laughs> like, what did you say? And, it, you know, and they, they like, he's, he swung at essay and essay swung back. And in about 0.3 seconds, I had flattened Scott on, on the floor. I've never moved so fast. I went through a marble table. I'm pretty sure I had the bruise to, to show for it afterwards. And I was on top of them. I'm, 200 pounds, six, six foot four. And I was like, are you done? I'm like, are you done? Cause this is, this ain't going to go well. You're one of eight counting yeah. girls. <laughs> and, and we do have fighting females. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was just madness. It was, it was so fast. It was like, that was 20 seconds, you know? And then he got kicked out of the bar and we all kind of separated. And, uh, and next thing we know, Chad and Scott, are in a fist fight and Chad is wailing on him. Um, so it wasn't essay that beat him up. It was, it was Chad and Chad gave him some good welts and it was the same thing. It was like, well, if you're going to be, if, if you're going to start something, then we're going to have to finish it, you know? And it was, it was crazy. It was a, it was a man possessed, you know, at, at one point I was in the hotel lobby when the fire department showed up and the police department showed up with way better things to deal with in Baltimore, I am sure, on a Thanksgiving night. 
but luckily they had a good laugh. They were just, they were like on one side of the room and he was on the other side just talking the craziest meanderings of an insane person. And, you know, thankfully, I know he's gotten help and, and it was a, probably a really tough time for him and all these things, but, and, and, and it did work out well. It was just kind of a messed up situation. The people in the bar were like, oh, you musicians always do this. I'm like, this has never happened. And, and, and I promise you, this will never happen again. This doesn't have anything to do with us. This, ha this is all Scott. And like I said, I'm, I'm happy he's gotten help and he's hopefully found his way because that was a man lost. Yeah, point. ironically, you don't I, want to fight I bet us. you almost did him a favor because, you know, sometimes like sometimes people kind of need to get checked a little bit, you know? Yeah, I mean, if so you're, if you're that stubborn, a favor. Yeah, if you're I'm that stubborn and insistent, there's going to there's going to be some consequences. And we were and we were we were just stuck in that position. There was nothing really we could do. I mean, you can't be totally passive. I just love the, the fact that you had no choice but to beat up the dude from Creed. Like, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be, that's what I'll say on the stand, on the Facebook stand. You, you play yeah. the hand you're dealt. That's right. So you okay, talked yeah. about experimentation post-Blue Album. Let's talk a little bit about happy accidents that happen along the way, things that kind of surprised you that turn into wonderful situations, be it songs, recording moments, onstage moments, what were those times in 311 history that made you say, wow, that, I can't believe that happened, but I'm so glad it did. Let's see, happy accidents. Um, I guess I like, um, you know, working with new producers and we've, we've had some really cool ones. First to kind of be discovered by Eddie Offord, who was uh um, old school English rock guy who from in his biggest albums were like, yes. And Emerson Lake and Palmer. And he did some work with um, John Lennon. And I mean, this guy had had some serious history. So not knowing how it was going to be to, to be with him and being paired up with him um, on that first album and going into the studio where like, I can't remember exactly, but they were like, remember that, Jackson five drum sound that was done here and Stevie wonder. And like, it was just, we were so very um, overwhelmed. And then um, things went totally off the rails with, with him on the, on the second album. And I don't want to get too much into that, but for me, that was um, just meeting with new producers and, and, you know, trying to harness that new energy. And then me and peanut were talking earlier about um, working with Ron St. Germain, who we just revered for his work with like bad brains and living color and all, just a lot of really cool music. Um, and then just to, to see how that goes. I mean, to me, I, I like to be pushed out of my comfort zone and getting with new producers is a good way to do that. Would What's people... your process as far as um, when you guys go to make music? Because it is so eclectic and I, f I feel like everybody kind of has their little piece of that puzzle. When you go into a studio to record a record or just whenever, just to make music, how does that work? Like, what's your process? I mean, um, I think you have to vary the process a lot. So there's no way to say, well, it goes like this because sometimes it'll be, um, you know, Peanut and I are, kicking around a demo right now where it just started with him do a little chord progression um 
on bass, right? And then you added some guitar and then, then and I heard a melody and I sent it back and forth. So that's kind of like this more um, quarantine friendly thing where you just send stuff back and forth. And other times there's been like a jam session. Other times somebody will write a song completely by themselves. So um, I think varying that process is really important. And And my own personal thing is like, Sometimes I'll be like, I need to just start, have a song that will, the melody is strong enough just on acoustic guitar to carry it through. Uh, where other times it can start with a riff and, or, you know, different um, ways. And, you know, I, my first instrument was piano. So, um, you know, I keep, I've got a Hammond organ here and a Rhodes over there. So I just, just try and have a lot of variety because I think that, um, falling into a routine is is the biggest risk when you're working on your fourth decade in music, you know, now that we've finished three decades. What people can't see if they're listening to this after the fact, Peanut is standing kind of deadpan in front of the camera. He's got mirrored shades on. After hearing the Scott Stapp story, there's kind of like a good cop, bad cop vibe I'm getting from Nick and Peanut. Nick's this approachable, affable guy, and Peanut's the guy who's here to make sure that no one crosses any lines or does anything untoward. So I, I'm, I'm being very careful around the band right now. So for the next few months, 311 Day is pretty much 1111 Day and 1211 Day and 111 Day. You're doing live stream album plays. By the way, I love album plays. I, I think music fans love that experience to hear songs they never got to hear live in, before. These are your first shows since the world went on lockdown. How does that feel to get back? And, and albeit it's a weird situation, but to get back on stage and function together as this unit. Well, if the rehearsals are any you know sign, it's, it's going to be great, and it, it feels wonderful to get back in the room with the guys. You know, you don't know how much much you miss someone if you haven't seen them for six months, and then you you know get to do what you love together that you can't do really on your own with you know even with all the producers in the world. You know, it's something we've got really special that, uh, you know, that we, we hold dearly to and is really nice to get back to. So having an audience involved is just going to be fantastic. And from all the friends that I've heard that have done drive-in shows, uh, they say it's, say it's incredible. Say it's like overwhelming, you know, to get back to it, even with the separation from the audience and that connection that we're so used to there's still going to be a lot of interaction going on in the streaming and, and the drive-in shows that I think we're going to feed off of even more sensitively than, uh, than we would in a, in a normal year, of course, because we're, we're all so hungry for it and we're starving. You guys should do what they do in the, uh, during the NBA bubble with that, the wall of fans, like the sports are doing for the streaming shows, just so at least you have some sort of reaction. Like I imagine it's got to be really weird to do an entire set for, I guess just some cameras, right? Yeah, but we've done enough TV and we've done enough videos that I think we can pull that off. But and, but it's it's more about how long it's been since we've played, and then knowing that people really are watching because it is hard to just play for a camera. That's 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 something that took years, decades to get even remotely used to, and uh, and it's a trick that we can pull out if we need to, but it's all about the fans for us and Capricorn sat us down when we were just getting started with our first label in Capricorn. And they were like, you're going to be a live band. You're going to be playing live. You know, that's something they can never take away from you. But they didn't, they didn't know about the virus. 
It didn't warn us about the virus. <laughs> so we, we stay, we remain flexible. You got to bend or you're going to break. Absolutely. So you're getting ready to celebrate your 30th anniversary as a band, which is incredible longevity uh, for your musicians, especially as the same lineup, even like that's really wild. Um, you've been getting well wishes from like everyone, Snoop, Lincoln Park, Korn. Um, are, do you, are you starting to feel like the elder statesman of alternative at this point? And maybe more so, what do you want your legacy to be when all is said and done and it's time to hang them up? Like, what do you want people to remember you guys for the most? I think that we uh, spread a positive message. We're, you know, um, a counterbalance to um, negativity that we um, brought people together. That's, that would be the most important thing. And I feel like um, it's taken both ourselves and other people a while to kind of realize what our place in, in music society is, you know what I mean? So as it goes further, I'm totally happy with, um, you know, being the, uh, veterans, the elder statesmen, um, because it's, it's just, I don't know. It, it's something that I hear every day that our, our music has helped people through hard times and people have met their significant other and then they have families and it's just a very, uh, it's an honor really to have, to have had that kind of effect on people. And, you know, when we first started out in the nineties, angst was a huge thing and it was, we felt a little kind of like, what is everybody so mad about? We're kind of, these are like usually suburban kids that have a lot of advantages and there was like no threat of war because you know the soviet union had fallen everything was like going really good but there was so much angst and anger in music that we didn't really we didn't want to just imitate that because that's what's going on these days so we were kind of like the the outcasts of being as being happy bands but then we stuck to what we do and then people realized that there's um there's something to it. There's a, there's a love and positive message and sort of, you know, hippie values that, that uh, really can stand the test of time. Music can have a really powerful effect on people, bringing people together and providing that, that bonding. So we just really focused on, and on that side of what music can do. I think it's really interesting that you bring that up because like, you know, to me, when you look back on it, I kind of look at you guys as, a major part of this music tree because you're kind of point a of the bands that really started to make music outside of a specific genre, I guess, so to speak, like you didn't sound like Seattle or you didn't sound like, you know, SoCal punk. Um, and you blended all of these things. And it's like, now you look at a band like, like 21 pilots doesn't exist without 311 or AJR doesn't exist. A lot of these bands that cross mold and blend all of these things. I mean, I think when it's all said and done, that's going to be a really big part of your legacy is that you guys were like the, one of the absolute first bands to do, how do you say this? Um, rap rock without it being what you would, equivocate the sound of rap rock to you like i'm not saying like you know limp biscuit or lincoln park rap like rap rock like that was certainly a thing right 
but yours came with all of the different, so many different sounds that I think when you look back, I think that's going to be a really big thing for you guys when, as we move forward, like it's really a crazy thing to think that like this little band out of Omaha was the first to go. Yeah, man, throw some dub over some hip hop beats and make a song out of it. Like, that's crazy. You guys have done a pretty amazing thing. Peanut, what do you want uh, your legacy to be when everybody well, I, looks back on this? I like, I like that. I like that. I like, your, I like your legacy idea. I think that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, besides the positive message and getting people together, yeah, where's our, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know. I think I mean, rock and roll is inherently a hybrid music. I mean, it's kind of in the name, even though it's a sexual overtone. That's really the origin of it. But it was all about rhythm and blues and gospel and country and, and, and you know, taken from Africa and Europe and, and everything. Just It's just a meeting of the minds. I think we were just continuing it. And we were just, I don't know, like I said, like a product of MTV and, and, and kick-ass radio stations in Omaha that, that did exist at the time that, that spanned a huge gamut of creativity that just influenced us at the right time. We met each other all at the right time. Um, we push each other um, in, in ways that we don't even know until the song is written or we're on stage appreciating it. It's, it's, it was, it's just some incredible timing. So, yeah, I think, I think the, the thing that will stick around will be part of the longevity and the and hopefully the the fearlessness that goes into hey what if what if we try something totally different you know and then and then make it like natural like it's not jarringly you know it's not a magic trick it's a it's a force of nature that you just haven't witnessed yet and it's i don't know it's it's important for us to be open minded still even going into our fourth decade about what turns us on musically and what can carry us create creatively in this new decade of, of still being together and, uh, and wanting to make new music together. Cause we've covered so much ground. We've said pretty much all we need to say. So what comes out next has got to be really important. We got to really feel it. Um, I think authenticity is, uh, is one thing that the kids can smell better than, than maybe we smelled when we were first being exposed to all these bands, but is something that is really important to longevity. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I hope people just, I hope we inspire more bands to get started. Like you were saying, we've influenced some bands and, and I love that longevity. And then the multi-generation appreciation of the band that comes with the longevity and the positive message, like, yeah, I'm going to bring my kid to this. And then they're going to bring their kids to this because it's still going on because it's that good to keep it going is that's probably what will, will stick around the longest. And, and then the uh, lifetime Grammy achievement award, you know, that'll, that'll be good. There it is. Cause it's kind of, and I think you, you just answered the secret to your longevity. I, I asked earlier about any fights or threatening moments to the band. When you create art for its own sake and not for the sake of commerce, when you stay true to yourself, I mean, Peanut, you mentioned authenticity. I think that's the threat because once you start introducing those commercial concerns and selling out's the wrong way to, to say this, but when you do things for the wrong reason, that's when you see rifts develop in bands. And you guys have stayed true for 30 years and that's why you're still here and that's why you're talking about the band right now that's why you're talking about these three virtual shows coming up fair to say absolutely <laughs> all right so again 
the long-enduring, much-beloved 311 returns virtually November 11th for a live stream play of music, followed by Grassroots in December and the Blue Album in January. 30 years. Uh, you know we love you here in Chicago, and thank you for doing this. Thank you for the support. Good to talk about music again. Yeah, so nice. Good to see a Metro t-shirt. And that was the first place we played in town. You know, we got introduced by our label rep, and it was so great. He was like, you know, like, Chicago welcome 311 you know and it really was that that moment and we knew smashing pumpkins had started there and we knew some of the history i mean just just being in chicago as a traveling band as a bunch of youngsters just getting started uh, chicago gave us so much love continues to give us so much love that it's really an, an adopted city uh, among you know another handful of other cities in, in the states that that just took to us really well there's some subculture that allowed us some inlet and to be appreciated from the get-go is something that I, I think will always be important to us in, in the band, uh, especially in Chicago's sense. So, but fun fact, uh, after we played that debut show at the Metro, Prince did a surprise secret show after oh he had just God. rocked the arena. And a couple of us got, I was there in the front of the balcony just <laughs> watching, the, like, this is heaven for me. Didn't he go on at like four in the morning? Yeah, it was really late. <laughs> Prince time. I was really stoned and just like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, Back thank you so time. much. The History of Alternative Podcast is recorded at the 101 WKQX Studios in Chicago. Subscribe on Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't do drugs, stay in school.